It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Mo DeKeel of many different places, the Nerdy She Wrote podcast, Bleacher Report, writing there, also does some great Twitch streams and everything else. And we talk about all four currently ongoing playoff series, kind of the transition between Game 2 and Game 3, and what we're expecting to see, what we've seen so far. Really fun conversation, goes in a lot of different directions. I really loved his insights on this. Runs just about an hour. I hope you enjoy it. Brought to you by betonline.ag. Use that CLNS50 code to get a 50% welcome bonus, and here's the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me, Danny. It's, it's always fun to come on Talk Hoops with you. This is a fascinating time kind of thinking about the second round because, you know, you had two games in the same place and we're, you know, on the doorstep of game game threes and all four series. And so we're looking at kind of what's going to change, what's going to stay the same. And I think the most pressing place for that is in Philadelphia, where as we're recording this, it looks possible, if not probable, that Joel Embiid is going to return after this fractured orbital bone and concussion. Just as a kind of as a practical consideration, what are you expecting should Joel Embiid play? Are you expecting a severely limited Embiid? Or are you thinking that it'll be closer to whole? Oh, I I think we have to expect a severely limited one. I mean, this is like I just keep saying it. It's a broken face. <laughs> like, <laughs> when we say, you know, we go, oh, it's a fractured orbitable bone and things like that. I'm like, yeah, it's a broken bone in his face <laughs> and a concussion like and i mean there was the report during the during the broadcast in game two that he had only like just started looking at his phone because it was too bright so yeah I, i'm with you i think that i hope that he you know that he's feeling well enough to play and if the medical staff and Embiid think that that is the right course of action i'm not going to spend too much time hectoring or badgering they know more than i do but to expect, and, and this, I mean, this has been a story in the playoffs over the years. I, I always use 2016 because it was a team that I was close to geographically. But it's like being on the floor and being right are not the same thing. Yeah, and I think that's the thing people kind of forget, right? Like there's a, a level of like, all right, he's on the floor. And Embiid's game, more than most guys, is a very physical game. It's a post game. It, it's isos at the, the free throw line and things like that. It's battling on the defensive end for rebounds and things like that it's easy to catch an elbow right like it's easy to 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 to, to get another hit well and, and he so- goes to the floor a lot too and usually that's not face to the floor but it's still you think about all of the other things that have gone on 
yeah, it's all stuff that you're like, you can look at and go like, wow, this, this could be concern, like should be a level of concern there. So it's not like I can just say, oh, Embiid's out there. Great. We're going to get our 30 points that we normally get from Joel Embiid. It's more like, okay, Embiid's out there. I hope he can help us, you know, and it's, and it's not a shot at Embiid or the Sixers or anybody. It's just the reality of the situation. Like this is, this is not a small injury. And then the concussion thing and the, the, the report you were talking about, like he was just able to look at his phone. Like for me, I'm just like, Ugh. I part of me is like, even if he wants to go, I'm almost like maybe they shouldn't play him like just for health concerns. Like I'm a little bit worried about it. I'm a little bit worried too. I would love to be wrong. I would love for it to just be, okay, this wasn't as bad as we all fear that it was. And, and he, and he's great. But the other huge component of this for Philadelphia, and of course, this has been a subject of significant discussion and consternation, is that even if it's not Joel Embiid at his maximum capacity as we as as we expect it, there's still the replacement concept that he is still replacing players who are significantly worse than a limited Joel Embiid and simplifying Doc Rivers' rotation. There are you know there are huge benefits here. Like it's interesting when you compare the suspension of Dylan Brooks for Game Three and functionally for Game Two because he was kicked out three minutes in with the suitable replacements that Memphis had. Melton had a nice game. Zaire Williams had some big threes versus Embiid, where that's more minutes for DeAndre Jordan, more minutes for Paul Reed, and some for small lineups as well. And so that, even if he's not right, and of course the priority is the health of Embiid in the near and the long term, but that does give Philadelphia a lot more cover. I mean, yeah, like let's just be honest, right? Embiid on the court at 50% is better than anybody else they could put out there to, repl- to replace him. And, and and if anybody wants to argue that, just go look at the last two games. Like there's, there's no real question behind that right and and just even the the threat of Joel Embiid might be something that the the Sixers can use even if he's not fully right in everything that he's trying to do and and, and get going so I I'm I'm with you on that like they just don't have the replacement you know they they're starting uh um DeAndre Jordan playing uh Paul Reed a massive ton more than they did in the regular season which to the consternation of many and you know and then playing small a lot like this is going to give Doc a little more flexibility everything you said's right on and now it's just a question of like let's let's hope he can produce and it's not something that yo he's just a shell of himself and and just straight a a, a massive negative for us on the court Sure. And the other wrinkle, which, you know, as much as we've talked about what the priorities and everything are for the for the rest of the series, that I am excited that we're going to get to hopefully see in a more competitive game is how Miami wants to address things offensively. I thought that the Heat got even more aggressive in game two, understanding that if the center is always in a drop, that there are certain actions you can do, you know, handoffs or certain screens, and you're going to get clean looks a lot of the time. I mean, you could even think to the one, I think that was that was on Paul Reed, where Hero, Hero was sent, he was sent left on a screen by Furkan Korkmaz straight into Paul Reed in a drop, and so he just pulled the three and pulled the three in no one's face because no one was there. And or all the stuff with Max Drews in in the stretches where he got going. And some of that story will still be the same with Joel Embiid. But I want to see what Spo and this Heat coaching staff have for for this version of Philly. Yeah, because I think also part of it, too, is if if Embiid's right, you know, he can draw you in foul trouble, too. And I think that's something that they've not really had an opportunity to really go at the Heat with, you know, is, hey, what happens when I mean, besides Deadman picking up three fouls in like four seconds in the in game one like I haven't felt like foul trouble has been an issue whereas you know Embiid's gonna have to 
kind of put that pressure on him. And now Spo's going to have to adjust. I think offensively, I think they just stay the, the same way because again, Embiid's going to be in drop two a lot of this, and I think that's the puts more pressure on the guards to get around those screens, especially the dribble handoffs and things like that. I mean, Danny, you see it as much as anybody else watching the Warriors. When teams lay off Draymond and he has the ball, it's perfect for the Warriors because then all Draymond has to do is handoff, set the right screen, and Clay, Curry, Poole, they're getting an open three on the other end because the big's not up. And I think that's going to be a lot of the stuff. You're going to see the same actions. I don't even know if there's that much of a different attack for the Heat with Embiid out there if he's in drop. The only difference is you know, Embiid has a better chance of being up more and recovering back. And I think that's where we'll have to see what, what he's like and then see what the Sixers do on the backside of that in terms of rotations and everything like that. Exactly. And how the this puts how this shifts the responsibilities, even though the personnel isn't probably the rest of the personnel isn't changing too much for the rest of the Sixers. And like as you mentioned, the backside rotations and everything like that will be key to watch. But I agree with you that the more interesting dynamic is especially because there isn't as much of a scheme set as as I see it and as I think you see it, there'll be more when Philly's on offense. And I thought James Harden looked a lot better in game two than he did in game one. And when you have a more significant threat alongside you at center, especially with how adept Harden is in, in screening actions and pick and rolls and everything else like that, it will it should open up some real estate, particularly because Embiid we'll see what he wants to do, but he can shoot. And so he, it might end up being that he's more comfortable as a pick and pop big. That can work with some of what Harden wants to do as well. Yeah, I mean, it's it's part of it is just the threat of it, right? Like, just him popping is going to create a little more space for him, you know, for Harden to attack on the drives and things like that when he comes off the screens. And I think some of what's happening is, you know, you're not worried about DeAndre Jordan, even when he rolls, right? And, and okay, Harden might throw the lob. We might get beat on a lob here and there with DeAndre Jordan. You know, it's you're not worried about Paul Reed in that same sense, I think. Part of the reason why the Sixers have had success when they've gone small is they've been able to pop, and that's kind of created driving lanes, not just for Harden, but also for Maxi. And I think those are the things that you're hoping you're going to be able to get with Embiid out there. Only the, the funny thing is I just went through like all of Embiid's shots with Miami when he played against Miami this season. You know, he only played three games, but a lot of the times, like he just sucked in defense. You know, it's just he drew extra guys in there. That's opportunities to crash the glass. That's opportunities to cut and 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 create more lanes for everybody. So I think it's going to open up and and be health, helpful for everybody. And I know that's not really a shocking statement, right? <laughs> MVP returning to the court helps everybody, but it, it it does lift everybody's offense up in a way of like creating more stability and more ways to attack. One key thing I'm going to be watching is that I thought in the first round, Embiid, part of how he was a game breaker in that series was moving, not even with the ball, typically, in transition, just moving, getting down the floor, putting more pressure, and those the, those eyes and eyeballs and, and the body's you know, attention that he's getting in transition was opening up a lot of opportunities, and Philly is not always the most consistent transition team, is probably a good way to put it. How much of that, whether we're talking about him probably having limited physical activity after this injury, and also, you know, like just is, you know, getting down the floor, like is is he in that phase? Because it would help a lot if he can do that, but I'm not expecting as much of Joel Embiid, the transition force, at least in the very beginning of his return. 
Yeah, I'm actually not really expecting it much, just in the sense of like people don't understand. It does not take long to get out of basketball shape, right? And he hasn't been able to do anything in terms of running or anything like that. He's been a concussion protocol, whole thing with his face, and we also got the the, the still has the the ligament issue with his thumb. Like right. there's a whole, whole lot of stuff there. Like I I would be surprised with that. I think where he can help them in transition is is a key part of getting transition for the most part is getting stops and getting rebounds. And I think that and then outletting it to Maxi because that's that's the dude that's going to fly for them up down in the court, right? Like that was the guy that was killing the Raptors in transition and gave them 29 first uh, fast break points in game one, you know, and I think just flying up down the court, I think that's where his help is, is going to be able to be in transition. It's going to be on the defensive end, getting stops, getting rebounds and, st- and getting the outlet. I just don't think we're going to see a lot of him running up and down the court just because I think fatigue, you know, there's, that's going to be a factor. And I think we got he's if he's going to come in and just play, you know, like 38, 40 minutes in a game when he hasn't played. What was it like a week now? I think that's about right. Yeah, that's that, that series. Um, yeah, that that seems right. On the maxi front, what have you thought about Miami's decision scheme to press a lot especially especially after makes like is that is that something you agree with i like it because i think you can slow them down a little bit right like the thing for for miami is let's just get them in the half court especially when they didn't have Embiid. it's like how how, how much are they going to really hurt us in the half court where where they can help you is or where they can hurt you is is speed and by getting up and down the court so let's start slowing down maxi also start trying to get into the legs there a little bit it's it's kind of the equivalent of like body punches and boxing, I think, you know, pressing early. It's like a couple of blows, hoping that that's going to pay off later in terms of getting to his legs and getting him a little bit tired. And also, like, as good as Maxi is, let's make him have to deal with pressure bringing the ball up to court in the sense of, you know, ball handling. Like, yeah, he, he's pretty good, but like, let's see if he can do that for a full, you know, 40 minute game that he's going to be playing. The thing I love less about it is I think Maxi, they're. They're doing a nice job using Philly is using it to get Maxi downhill and in, in an advantage situation. So like a portion of the time, I think exactly what you're speaking for, and it works beautifully. And then there's a section of the time where you kind of break the press early, and Maxi has let's call it a four on three, but it can be you know a three on two or depending on how everything's executed. And there's you know you it's hard to run a press perfectly that you won't have that. It's it's an acceptable part of it. It's a, it's not a it's not a feature or a bug. It's just a consequence. Right and I, you know, we talked about the idea of like, well, what are they really getting in the half court? And especially before Embiid got back, I thought it's like, you can just deal with them in the half court and it's not going to be that big of a problem. But, it, you know, the defense did well enough. I don't think it was too big a deal. I thought they just gave Philly a little bit more than they need to. But that calculus, even with a limited Embiid, completely changes. And I'm so then I, th- I think we transitioned from that to the last game we saw. You know, we had a day off, which was, I think, welcome for for all of us in basketball <laughs> yes. media, yes. even if it was less so for the for the fans. And it was weird to have a Thursday with no games. Well, the last game we saw was Phoenix-Dallas game two. And I reflected on it a little bit yesterday and was thinking that to me that even though it wasn't a perfect game for Philly for Phoenix, sorry, defensively, the Suns, that was the most impressive single game performance from any team so far in these playoffs, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, it was 
I don't know. If I, I'm I'm gonna. I might push back and go uh, at boss. Say some some of the. Oh stuff yeah, that Tom. that's a that's a fair call too. Okay, but but what was impressive about this was this was probably the most most ruthless matchup hunting we've seen since Harden was a, a a Houston Rocket, right? Like this was the thing. That's the thing that stood out to me in that in in that game game two. Like just watching that was just a level of like. We're just going to go at Luca over and over and over again, and there's nothing you can do. And then it's funny because Danny, like that's part of the 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 pressing stuff is part of that. Like there were times where like Reggie Bullock's trying to pick up Chris Paul at, at full court, and to me, I'm like, that's not that's actually worse for you because now you're spacing the court even more, and Reggie's not the type of guy that's going to be able to really bother chris paul the way jose alvarado did right like i think get into his dribble you know change that cadence any of that kind of stuff exactly just being a pest like that's not what reggie's going to be able to do well, that's and, not- and, all, and also while i wish willie green had played him more jose alvarado is not playing as many minutes he doesn't have the same kind of role and responsibilities that reggie bullock does where if a bullock has it seems like he has a pretty good motor and this if the lucas motor of course came up in this it's a lot to do yeah no it's 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 a lot and that's all the more reason why I'm like, I feel like the Dallas staff saw it bother Chris and said, let's do it ourselves. And it's like, you don't have a guy in the same position as Alvarado to be able to do that, right? Hey, you, basically, Willie Green was just be able to say, like, Jose, go get him, you know, and that was it. And, and, and it didn't. And really, also, like, let's just be honest, if Jose Alvarado fouled out. I don't know how much of a difference that would have been in the chances for New Orleans to win that to, to win that specific game, right? But they need the Mavs need Reggie Bullock to hit threes and spread the floor and stuff. When he's doing it defensively, it makes it even easier for Chris to get those switches and get Luca on him because now the screen's coming at half court, and as soon as he comes off that screen, Luca's got to be there. At, it's tough for Reggie to really recover on that, right? Because like when Chris, even though he's old and not as fast as he used to be, when he crosses over and goes, Reggie doesn't have the the speed that he's going to need to go with that. And I think that's the situation there. So now Luca feels the need to have to switch, and then from there they're able to just attack over and over again. I think that's the the thing. And then I mean, just the Suns are deep, man. Like that's the difference between this team and last year's team. I mean, we saw that with DeAndre Ayton basically missing most of the game with foul trouble, and they were able to make do. And I mean, JaVale had that amazing highlight. He had a, he had a couple of, you know, a couple of inconsistent plays, but the, they could go to Biombo as well. And even without Dario Sharch, they have a lot of different players to make these to make these teams work. I'm thankful we're seeing more from campaign. There was a stretch where he just wasn't looking quite right. I think it was probably related to that wrist issue that he had. Mm-hmm. And also, we, the growth of, you know, like Mikhail Bridges being able to do more with the ball in his hands. He had a couple of really nice passes in game two. You're not going to run the offense through him, but the, I think that the role of secondary, tertiary, complementary playmakers can be underappreciated in time. It's like, I, I mean, Danny Green's growth in this is also interesting, where it's like, yeah, he's still not, you're, you're still not running the offense through him, but if you can make two dribbles and a good decision, like, you can do something. And Mikhail Bridges is better than that. He has yeah. done more over time. And so, what that means is that what you're conceding, if you leave Mikhail Bridges in the corner or you're not tracking him through a screen or something else, is not necessarily just a clean Mikhail Bridges look. It could be a pass to someone else for a dunk or something in that vein. Yeah, I mean, that's what we saw, right? Like the baseline dunk to Biombo when they did finally double Chris in that in that little run that he was going through at the end of the or midway through the fourth quarter that blew the game open, right? It was double, swing it to Shamit, Shamit immediately swings it to Bridges, he attacks the closeout, hits Biombo on the baseline. Like it's those are the types of things that you're opening up. But it also just goes 
back to like that's the methodical and and almost like machine like precision with which the the suns attack you now right like as soon as cool you do that we're going to this you do this we got that like they have just they have all the answers at this point and i think that's kind of what's what's frustrating for the mavs what's so interesting on that front for comparing phoenix and golden state who could but definitely not assuredly will face each other in the Western Conference Finals, is that I think of the Warriors as more rigidly attached to their scheme and philosophy than Phoenix, where some of that might be Chris Paul and Monty. It could also be just the personnel they have is fundamentally different. But the Suns, they're willing to bend what they do to attack to to attract what you're doing more than a than an idea that we're we're good enough at what we do that we'll just make it that that it's going to work and we're fine. And both strategies are valid. I'm not saying that the Suns is, you know, empirically superior, but I think that using Luca, so Bob Ligaris had the stat, using Luca's man as the screener 50 times in one game, that is that is an element that makes Phoenix really dangerous when it comes to the playoffs because there are no perfect defenses out there. Yeah, and it's just, it's more, again, it's just more like, and we're going to keep going until you figure out how to stop us. And you might not be able to. Four games might not be enough. You might be, you might be just flawed in the, in the way your team's constructed that you can't really break us out of that. And I don't think they, they need to. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if they do it all game this time instead of just waiting until the second half. Well, and that ties in with what I think is so fun in the transition between game two and game three is especially if like a dominant home win for the home team in game two, which happened in, I would say to an extent it happened in both these games. There's the additional context in Miami that Embiid didn't play. But the key question that we'll know mere hours from now is how much of what Phoenix did successfully in game two is sustainable? How much of it do you build on? And then how much of it do you need to do a, develop a new counterpunch or develop a new new thing? And I'm generally thinking that what Phoenix did offensively in game two, especially with more DeAndre Aiden, will be able to persist. But I'm not so sure of it. And that's part of what I love about basketball. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I actually think it's probably more more sustainable. But I think the interesting thing is, and this is the best part about game threes, is it's adjustment time more so, right? Like sometimes what happens with coaches is you have your game plan going into game one, whatever. You get blown out, you lose a close game, whatever it is. You're going into the meeting getting ready for game two. You got to start looking going like, okay, what worked? What didn't work? What? And when you start looking at the stuff that didn't work, did it not work because we just didn't execute or did it not work because the idea was was screwed up from the beginning and what the hell were we thinking um and i think that's that's the question and sometimes that's why we don't see the adjustments necessarily in game two because it's hey we didn't execute it let's try it again and do better which always by the way is frustrating in general uh, <laughs> or it's like we just got to do it better um and and then from after game two now you have a look and you maybe you have a two game sample size and now you have to adjust in game three and i think that's something that we might see some where the Mavs might go screw it we're just going to trap and and get the ball out of Chris's hands and hope you know Landry Shamit and and Bridges and Payne don't make enough plays and 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 same thing we're going to trap Booker and just hope we're able to kind of uh take advantage of it and and maybe we won't get sliced as much or we're just going to fight over the top and Luca you're not switching it's like I think there's going to be some sort of adjustment that they're going to look to make that it, after two games they're looking
looking at it going like, okay, we have enough proof. This isn't working. So I'll, I'm ex- that's the thing I'm most excited about in this game three is just seeing what do they do defensively on those pick and rolls. I'll add in another one kind of on it's it's funny. It won't sound like it's the same front, but it really is, which is does Jason Kidd change the way Luca fits within the offense in the first half of the game? Because I thought a part a part of this theory for the Suns is Luca is so ball dominant on offense. And I don't mean that as a criticism. It's just the way that Dallas's offense works when he's on the floor. And we got to see the stark difference in the Utah series of with Luca and without Luca. And one of the ways to have him, you know, because he looked exhausted towards the end of game two. And so you can solve that a couple of different ways. One is you can you lean on him less offensively at various moments in the game, but especially in the beginning. You can also play him fewer minutes. You could give him more rest time. They have other players to run the offense. Their defense will be fine either way. All that. Or the third door is you believe that Luka can play harder, can play better, and you don't change anything, and you hope that that will improve. And this, it's not you choose one of the three and everything else just goes the same, and circumstances like foul trouble could shift it. But which of those choices Jason Kidd sees as the priority, as the clearest path forward, will tell us a lot about how he's going to handle stress you know, like challenges right. as a coach. And like, I think there's a, there, there's a big point and it'd be interesting to get your thoughts on this. Like, and I mean, Monty Williams is another great example of this. Like, I think there are times that we all media members, fans and everything else tether ourselves to the idea that coaches can't improve. And I think we've had some wonderful examples in recent years that they absolutely can. And so for kid, like part of why I thought he was a terrible coach in Milwaukee was his rigidity that he's like, I want to do these things, even if it's a bad fit for our talent, even if it's not working out too well for us. But he's had time in other places. He's had success as an assistant. He's had time to think about what went right and what went wrong in Milwaukee and Brooklyn. And this is a real test of that approach. Yeah, it for sure. But I also think he's a little bit limited too, though, Danny. Oh, right? that's like, true. <laughs> like, like, what can you? How much can you really change? It's almost like uh, you're 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 somewhat resigned to this fate with just the roster you have a little bit because there's not like they're going to do pre switching. I think we're going to see a lot of that, but that's not that hard to get. Okay, cool. Luca's going to go from the uh, you know whoever he's guarding is going to go set set the screen and they're going to pre switch it. Whoever Luca's guarding now is going to run right behind them and set that screen. Or, right? or you can Luke- do some Spain variants, or you could do there are a bunch of double you could do double drags or anything else. Like there are a bunch of different ways that you could try to still involve him in the same action. Yeah, and and so it, it it's it's tough because it's again it's. Like, there's nobody I'm looking at on the Mavs going, like, that's the guy that's really going to slow down Chris, right? And I think, you know, Dorian Finney-Smith's going to have a shot. He's got to stay out of foul trouble because that's a, that's a big thing for them, too. I think he picked up four early in the third, uh, his fourth foul. Um, and I think the, the you know, Reggie Bullock's going to do his best. You know, Brunson's going to try to hang with Chris and, and things like that. But it's you're just in a tough spot, right? Like, I don't know what's what's the right thing to do. Maybe they just go screw it. We're just going to go whole zone and, mm-hmm. and, and try to figure it out. Like, they're going to throw my, – my guess is and my hope is just throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. And when you find something that sticks, stay with it until they find a way to break it. Then go to your next thing. I think that's going to be the the game plan. But it, you're right in terms of, like, rigid, rigid – I can't say the word. Uh <laughs> Rigidity? <laughs> Rigidity. Hard <laughs> word to say, like honestly. <laughs> yeah. But I feel like, you know, if if, if K- kid doesn't change anything, that's a glaring sign. 
because you just can't go in there again thinking like going into game three thinking this is going to be fine. We're going to work it out. And I think you made a great point a little bit earlier, too. It's it's also going at Luca on the defensive end is their best defense for him offensively. Tire him out. Right. Like him, him having a a 50 percent usage in the first quarter is not a good thing for the Mavs. That's going to wear him down. It's just too much to ask. And in a normal series, one of the other dynamics that you would look at is typically when you go from road to home, your role players play better and you the shots can go in. And Dallas made 17 of 41 threes in game two. Dinwiddie still has some challenges, but I think Dinwiddie's just, it's a hard series for him. The Suns have a lot of good defenders and have very few bad ones. I think that, you know, just like Jalen Brunson is having some struggles in this series because there's a a a jump from the perimeter defense of the Utah Jazz to the Phoenix Suns who could have seen that coming yeah I mean right like oh you you mean they're not just gonna let me walk right into the lane like that's that's what I thought that was the deal we made (laughs) I thought thought that was the rule (laughs) what happened you know what what do you mean they don't do this in Phoenix (laughs) like I feel like it's part of the, the 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 shock value that they're getting and I think we were all kind of prepared for it except them well it, it, it's it's hard to prepare it's just it just hit, it hits you in the face like it's just it's just the way the way things work out plenty more with mo to come but first message from betonline.ag our partners at betonline continue to be the number one source for all your betting needs and sports information find all of the latest sports developments including updated odds on the playoffs major league baseball fights and even next season's nfl futures and don't forget this weekend as the run to the roses is on at the kentucky derby BetOnline is your continued source for all of your sports wagering needs, including live betting and your favorite Vegas casino and poker games. It is super easy to get started, so head to the website today or use your mobile device to join and use our promo code CLNS50 to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Also tells them that you came from us, so remember that code is CLNS50. So check it out at BetOnline, where the game starts. Let's go to Warriors-Grizzlies. I think this is another series. I, I mean, we talked about rigidity just now, and I I expressed skepticism in Game 1 with, I thought the Warriors, they had an idea of how they wanted to defend John Morant, and sure, Draymond getting tossed in late part of the second quarter changed some of that, and the Warriors still won that game, of course. I, I think that the way I would classify it is, I thought they had an interesting concept, but then when it wasn't working super well, they didn't move away from it, and Ja had this huge 18-point fourth quarter, and they were only, he was going left every time, which is what Ja actually prefers, and he couldn't see out of one eye, and everything else. How Steve Kerr and the Warriors coaching staff, their theory of the case for Game 3, in some ways to me, is more important than whether it succeeds or fails. That's such a great way of putting it. And now I just picture them in like a, a detective's office <laughs> investigating and, 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 and looking at everything. Um, but you're right. And I think the fourth quarter in particular for Ja, like they it wasn't even just him constantly getting to the left. It was getting into foul trouble The the or getting to the line. Excuse me, not him getting into foul trouble, him getting the free throw line, going five of five from the line, making it harder for the Warriors. And, and they just don't have an answer now. It, it, and maybe they never did. I don't know how much we could say Gary Payton would have been able to stay with Ja all the way. I mean, that's his be- their best point of attack guy. But they don't have just a straight one-on-one answer for Ja. I think the one thing we're going to see them do, and they did it in Game 2, and I think they should continue to do it, is, hey, we're still going to hang back and let him shoot threes, right? He had a nice shooting night. You know, he shot it well. You know, went 5 of 12 from 3. I'm just going to say... if. You, I'm looking at that from a coaching staff perspective and going like he shot 12 threes 
Like they barely beat us. He shot 12 threes. I'm okay with that because I don't think he'll go five for 12 again in a, it, it, the rest of the series. Like if he's going to settle for those threes, I'm going to live with that. And I think the important thing after that is they just got to start figuring out what they need to do defensively. And I, the one thing I think they should look at is they should really do the, the treatment that Harden got from the Bucks a few years ago. Just literally sit on his left side, force him to the right and force him into the help with the right. Doesn't matter if the Grizzlies flip the screen. Doesn't matter which way the screen's coming. We're just not going to let him get back into the lane going to his left. Even when he takes the one dribble right and crosses into his left, he's going to run right into us. We're going to force him to try to finish everything on the right side of the court. And I just want to see how that looks and see how they're able to kind of deal with that. Because I don't think they have one person that's going to be able to just stay with him. Especially with Gary Payton the second out. Like, yeah. it, it, it is going to be a practical problem. And so it's a, it's a team scheme. Like, that. that's the way the Warriors are going to have to handle this. And I also thought part of the reason why Game 2 was a tactical misstep for them was... It's you. It's understanding the you know KYP and know your personnel, but it's kind of know their personnel. It's a lot easier, more palatable to get the ball out of John Morant's hands when the complementary players aren't are, aren't doing well. So like Desmond Bain looked extremely limited, and I think he you know if you had given him better, and I thought he did well defensively, but if you had given him more touches. With that back issue that he's clearly laboring through, it wouldn't have been there. Maybe with the long gap between games two and three, he'll look a lot better. I hope for Memphis that he does. And there is that element of it's not only what you identified with the team moving forward, it's the circumstances on the ground. And I thought that another way that Memphis did this, and how much of it was Memphis and how much of it was Clay Thompson, it's hard to know. But Clay Thompson took a lot of really aggressive, I would say selfish shots, particularly in game two, but he's done it honestly throughout his return. And I don't know exactly why that's the case. I don't know because, and and with Clay, it's really interesting. There's a parallel between him and Anthony Edwards, who, where they, they're really good at certain things. And then, but they, they have like kind of, I would call it a uniform confidence where it's like, well, I'm good at everything. And it's like, yeah, you're better at everything than most people are. But Clay, (laughs) he, you know, like, he's like, okay, I'm doing well. I need to take these shots. So it's like, I'm going to shoot an 18 foot pull up turnaround. Like, what are you doing? That's, that's not it. And, and it's, the other part of it, and I think back to Clay actually said this after the Warriors won their first championship in 2015. He talked about how one of the adjustments that they had to make was understanding that what a good shot was was different than what they had previously understood. And I think Clay needs to have an internal conversation to that he he's do, he's doing that poorly right now. And the Warriors are good enough offensively that if you took the worst 10% of the shots they take, I mean, of course you could say the same with turnovers and and if that had happened if that could happen they would be a buzzsaw, but it seems like those are just in there. And I'm interested in whether any of that changes too. Yeah, I think you know the there are a lot of shots that that Clay has taken where I'm just kind of like, mm, that's not like the the, the decision making is kind of funny to me. And I think part of it is, and this is going to sound a little bit silly and maybe even a, a a bit nuts altogether, but like I almost feel like he needs to make up for missing the last two years, right? And that's kind of the rush of it is like this is my opportunity. I'm shooting every time I catch the ball, 
almost, you know, and it, and I feel like that's he's he's gotten away from like let's just make the right play. There was um I'm I'm going based off memory, so everybody forgive me a little bit, but there was a play where like I think he got an offensive rebound or had a probe dribble underneath the basket, and as he's dribbling out to the corner, there's a perfect handoff for Poole right for a shot, you know, for for Jordan Poole, and he doesn't he just completely ignores Poole, kicks it out to I think Draymond to come back to a handoff, and and I feel like those are the things where it's like just make the simple play, man. Like that's kind of what the Warriors have been when they're at their best. They just make the simple plays and the simple reads. I feel like he's pressing too much and I think the more he struggles shooting the more he presses and I think that's a conversation I think that not just you know he needs to have with himself internally but I think that's something the the coaches need to have a conversation with him whoever's working out with him afterwards after practices might need to sit him down and go like let's go over your shots man let's 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 look at some of these decisions we're making here and I think that's something that they really got to kind of lock in on it will be an important adjustment for the series and I want to also get a sense of where Taylor Jenkins wants his rotations to go. Game three will be different with Dylan Brooks unavailable. But I thought that Xavier Tillman looked a lot better in game two than game one. After game one, I'm like, is there really a place for him in the series? The Warriors don't play that kind of center. Like, they're not the Wolves in any way, shape, or form. But he was so disruptive in game two, like in the time that he was out there. How Jenkins interprets game those first two and kind of what he wants from his front court, especially with the rise of DeAnthony Melton. And so when you think about game four in some ways might be more tactically compelling from Memphis's perspective, kind of the personnel element of this, because they're going to have all these things to work with. And so armed with that, and hopefully a healthier Desmond Bain, does Jenkins think we can go smaller more often? Does he say, hey, we've been going big, it's worked out reasonably well? Yeah, I think he's just got to stay going big. You know, it's funny, it's such a weird series in the sense of, you know, the the Warriors are still getting like a ton of offensive rebounds and things like that. I even think they're out rebounding the, the Grizzlies in this series. But I feel like in the long run, that will even out. I think he's got to stay big. I think it it opens up, going small opens up more opportunities for Jaron Jackson to pick up dumb fouls, right? And I think yeah. that's that's the big thing there. And I also think, and this might be slightly of a hot, slightly hot take, but I don't think they're going to miss Dylan Brooks that much. I actually think they're better without him. I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily say they're better without him. I, Nate and I talked about this a little bit on Dunked On after after it looked like he might be when we got the kind of the diagnosis on Gary Payton and looked like Brooks was going to be suspended. Is that there are times that the Grizzlies are actually absolutely better without Dylan Brooks. He takes some reckless shots. He can be very foul happy, but I think he generally he's done the best job on Steph Curry of any of the Grizzlies. And there's that's that's valuable for Memphis, though Curry still didn't have a great two game two even after Brooks got tossed. And but what what is harder? And this is just such a fascinating how sports works. I think it's harder to argue against it that the Grizzlies have more effective replacements for Dylan Brooks than the Warriors do for Gary Payton II, who was the 15th player on their roster when the season started. And so (laughs) that, like, even if you want to argue that the Grizzlies are better with Dylan Brooks out there, the margin between Dylan Brooks and DeAnthony Melton and Zaire, depending on how you want to structure things without him, that margin is smaller than Gary Payton spot in the rotation to whatever other player it is because they don't have another player like him. Yeah, and I think that's the challenge, right? Like that's and that's a credit to the Grizzlies front office who have done a phenomenal job drafting and finding guys and 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 the opportunities. Like finding the Anthony Melton, you know, when I think it was Houston had him, right? And they they kind of just discarded with him and things like that. Just finding the the opportunities and 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 the areas in which you can take advantage and and add to your roster, it goes a long way cuz it's such a great point you made though, the drop off from Brooks to the next guy 
is not at all as big as the drop-off from Gary Payton to the next warrior who's got to replace him defensively. And I think that's the big thing. My thing with Brooks is I can't stand his offense. The decision It, it, dri- it drives his- me completely crazy. Like, I, 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 thankfully, I have more self-restraint, and I'm not actually attached to any of these teams because, like, I would have thrown my remote at the TV at some point if I was, like, a fan base, a part of the Grizzlies fan base. Because he takes some of these shots, and I'm just like, dude, you're killing us. And I think that's the 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 my my main complaint with him on that end. You know, as good as he is on defense, I'm like you're throwing it away on the offensive end. I don't want to go too deep down this rabbit hole, but Dylan Brooks extension negotiations this offseason, that's a whole separate I mean, I wrote a piece about how Memphis is the sleeping giant of the offseason. I didn't include that partially because it opened it opened a can of worms <laughs> I didn't want to get into there. Right. But Zach Kleiman and this front office, they're in a really good situation. I mean, Memphis, young team, two seed in the West, played great this year. And there will be a lot of rising teams in the West, you know, just the teams getting healthy. You and I actually talked about that the last time we did a pod together. But you also, at the same time that you expect this there to be this rising tide, especially with Ja and Jaron and Bain having this huge year and everything else, there are some big decisions that they have. And OKC is a great example of this, but there are numerous other ones. I mean, even you could argue the Warriors. I mean, it was more palatable because they got Kevin Durant out of the whole thing. But part of growth is actually also saying goodbye to players who who have been an important part of what you do. And I'm not sure that's Dylan Brooks, but it's going to be somebody. That's just the way this works. And it can be painful for a front office. It can be painful for Van Vase. And if it doesn't seem painful at first... That probably means it's coming later, and the Atlanta Hawks are a great example of that. Of where and wrestler talked about this uh, on Thursday. It's like sometimes bringing everyone back is the wrong idea too. Yeah, no, I think this. It, what's fascinating about this game three actually might play into the the negotiations, right? Like if they just if Curry goes off for forty something, and the the Grizzlies have not were not able to stay in front of him and and struggled with that, it's it kind of helps this case, right? If if they're able to defend Curry and keep a flow offensively, it it, it hurts his case in terms of what, what what do you do with his contract and 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 how much he gets. It's it's, it's a very interesting dynamic in the sense of like this this is game without Brooks could be really interesting in determining how much you want to go, how much you want to stay with him and what's it going to cost to stay with him. I'm with you. And again, it goes with how well they've done in the past. Like it it makes it a very interesting conversation. The only series we haven't yet discussed is Buck Celtics. And you can make an argument. It's the most fascinating. And the word that I'm thinking of going into game three is equilibrium. And we had these massively different games one and two. And I'm a huge fan of both of these teams. And I, you know, I picked the Celtics in the series. I felt terrible about that after the first half of game one, when it looked like the Bucks were doing great and even more after the second half of it. But then Boston puts together a phenomenal game two, execute really well, the one-on-one idea on Giannis. And so why I say equilibrium is the, the key question is typically in a series, it, it can take three, four games, especially if there's an addition or something like that to figure out kind of where is the balance here and there can be adjustments. I don't know where things stand. And it's fun. I enjoy that as a fan, as an analyst and everything like that. But it's also very stressful. It's it's very it's 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 stressful, but it's also fun for me. Yes. And like we have I have no idea what to expect in this next game three. Right. Because what we saw in game one and what we saw in game two drastically different. I think the the stuff that's really going to be interesting and exciting about this game is, you know, how will the how will 
Milwaukee get Giannis going in the half court? Because even in game one, you know, they they were not good in the half court offense, right? And I think all of this is where the loss of Chris Middleton is really hurting them because they were phenomenal in transition, turning the, the Celtics over and getting out running and getting 28 transition points. In game two, just six transition points. Like, that's a 22-point swing. That's a very difficult thing to make up, right? Like, if they can get 13 or 14 transition points, it makes this game interesting. I think what we're heading for, Danny, in this game is I feel like both teams got their 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 wilds out of the system in games one and two. And I think games three and four are going to kind of turn into like massive defensive battles. And I think we're going to see them both kind of try to figure each other out now. Now you've kind of gotten both teams have taken a punch. Now let's figure out where we're going next. And I think it's a interesting dynamic in terms of how will the Bucks attack the, the Celtics defense and how will the Celt- can the Celtics maintain at least some hot shooting? I don't think they'll shoot what they shot last game, which I think was like around 46 or 48% from three. But can they make enough of them that's going to keep the the Bucks defense uh, honest here? It's a great point. And one way that I've been thinking about it is Boston isn't, it, it depends on Robert Williams and a few other things. They're not always the most aggressive at attacking the rim to get fouls or just to get finishes. Is that you have to adjust your calibration when you're facing the Milwaukee Bucks of what is a good shot because shots around the bat, like getting to the basket when Giannis and Brook Lopez are there is not the greatest thing for you unless you draw help from some other way. And the Bucks right. have been better about not doing that. And so... You're going to have to take some mid-rangers. You're going to, and I thought that that part of Boston's approach was very fascinating in game two. They were able to get that. And then, you know, also understanding that the way you attack the Bucks when they have those two rim protectors out there, which they did not for basically the entire regular season, versus all other configurations is fundamentally different. Because when you get back to one, and I don't know why, well, I guess it's because they switch a lot. I think of Miami for this. It's that one of the key elements if a team you know, it only has one rim protector is, can you get that rim protector anywhere other than the rim? And right. so that becomes much more of a pressing thing for Ime Udoka and the Celtics in the minutes. And there are a fair amount of them. I mean, it starts pretty early in the first quarter because of when Budenholzer pulls on Giannis of we're in this one rim protector. Then maybe you have a floor spacing big or you draw something out, see if you can get Lopez anywhere else. And if not, if he's going to stay stuck in the paint, then that's when you try to shoot them out of it and try to do all these all these other elements. And then in the other, you ha- so you basically have kind of, you could call it two offenses, one for when the Bucks are in their base configuration and one for when they're in anything else. Yeah, and I think, you know, the part of the Celtics game plan, though, Danny, in, in their the way they attack is they got to get into the paint. And I don't either way. That, yeah. Yeah. And I don't even need shoot in the paint, but they just got to get the ball into the paint because the defense collapses. That's where they get their kickouts. Right. Like for me, the, the 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 differences in the Celtics offense in game one and two was game one was a lot of I'm going to get my own. I'm going to get these shots. I'm going to get, you know, and they shot 53s. And it was a lot of it was off the dribble. A lot of it was not off driving kicks and things like that. Game two, you know, they shoot 43 threes, but a lot of it was off of driving kicks. A lot of it on like one possession getting two different attacks into the paint and get the defense going like I think the importance to watch the important thing to watch in this game 
for the Celtics offensively is how are they getting their shots? You know, um, Stan Van Gundy on the broadcast was like, they got to get more points in the paint. I'm like, they'll lose a series if they try to get, they try to beat the Bucks in points in the paint, right? Like, they're not going to score a lot with Giannis and Lopez in the paint. But if they can attack the paint and kick it out and those guys can hit just enough shots, it's 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 going to change the tenor of the series and it's going to force the Bucks to maybe have to adjust their defense a little bit. And then you can then you can possibly score in the paint. But if their goal is, hey, we just got to beat the Bucks in the paint, you're screwed. The series is over. It was years ago now, but there was a game, a regular season game, and I want to say it was 18 or 19, where Brad Stevens in the second half basically made his entire offense. We're going to drive to the nail, draw help, and then auto kick to the corner. And they were getting all these open threes. The Bucks have moved away from that scheme stuff. But the idea that getting into the paint can create a lot of other things is so important to understanding not only this series, but NBA basketball in general. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's the basic tenet of zone offense, right? Get the ball in the middle, right? Like everything happens when you're able to get the defense to collapse. Like if you you have to get the Bucks into rotation and you have to get them chasing the ball because just basic physics and we all know I'm dumb as hell and shouldn't understand physics all that well but the ball moves faster than the person right and and if they can swing the ball around now the bucks are chasing and things like that that's where you're going to get your open looks and your driving opportunities it's where you're going to be able to draw fouls and get attacks like all of it stems from driving and driving and getting into the lane and when you're able to do that that'll open everything up but when you get in the lane and then try to take the shot and ignore the kickouts ignore the dump off passes on the baseline you're playing right into the bucks hands like they want you to come in the paint and try to score at the rim. But what they don't want you to do is come in the paint and then make the kickout pass. And I think you got to hurt them enough there so that they got to go like, damn, we got to adjust now. The sport is significantly more complicated than this. But one of the ways that I like to think about offense is how do you create an advantage? And then what do you do with that advantage? And I mean, Phoenix in game two of that series is a really amazing example that you so you can create an advantage by getting getting the matchup you want. And you can use a pick and roll or you can use a you could maybe that advantage is just creating an isolation Memphis at the end of game two of the Warriors. It was they weren't setting screens. It was just John Morant beating beating his man to the spot and getting to the left side and everything else. And then what do you do with that? And I think those those elements and I think in some ways what the Bucks try to do, especially when they're full strength, is it's hard to create an advantage and it's hard to maximize. Right. And that's of course the entire thing for Phoenix's defense too. And you know, having and versus Utah's defense where it was very easy to create an advantage and then it was what do you do with it? And that's part of why the Utah Jazz are watching the second round at home and these other teams are not. Exactly. And and, and I think that part of what makes this fun is that how you do the it sounds simple but it is the furthest thing from that most of the time and if it is simple as we brought up with the jazz then they're not around for very long yeah i mean that's the thing it's it's the concept that's simple it's the execution that's the complicate that makes it complicated right and, and and how do you go about it and how do you attack like that's that's why it's it's, it's drastically different in how you attack the jazz is going to be different with how you attack the suns how you attack Minnesota should be different than how you attack uh, the Warriors and, 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 and vice versa and all that stuff. And I feel like these are going to be the things that we're going to have to watch for throughout the series. And then this is a, this is the coaching part. Playoffs are a lot more about coaching than the regular season because now it's the adjustments. Now you got to figure out 
real quickly on the fly. What's working? What's not? Who, who's going to be quick to change? Who isn't? And everything that goes with it. I feel like this is going to be these these game threes, even the series that are 2-0 are going to be really interesting because it's it's for those teams. It's going to be a uh, wild uh, uh, I mean, it's going to decide their, their season for the most part. Yeah, I, th- I think that's very fair. Last question. I try, oftentimes my theory with Real GM Radio is to make it more evergreen. This is a podcast that cannot be, they'll have all these games coming. So the question is, which of these series are we going to be thinking about the most differently once all of the game threes are concluded? God, that's a great question. Um, wow, that's, see, last time you stumped me with the, the, the Mavs. Sons. If you want, if you want to think about it, I can give you my answer because I've been thinking about this today. And no, you, you, give me your answer. I'm gonna go with Buck Celtics just because it's so much more information than we have right now. Where right. like I, I have an idea. Phoenix. I don't think it's Phoenix, Dallas, or Philly, Miami. Though Embiid's return makes that possible, but if we, you and I both, we spent a long time at the beginning of this talking about how we think he's going to be limited. I, you know, Philly absolutely can win. They could have won. They could won game three without him, but they're doing that. So for me, but then with with Warriors Grizzlies, I think we kind of have an idea of where things are going. It's just going to be, you know, it's going to be a close series on the margins. Who hit shots? A couple of these other things. Whereas the series I can't make heads or tails of is is Boston Milwaukee because they're both so good at what they do, and we've seen a best case scenario for both teams. And what I want to, what I'm expecting in game three, you brought this up of how it's going to be defensive series is what happens when it's not that for either team? What happened? Where, where is, I used the word equilibrium before, and I don't think we're going to get a definitive answer there on Saturday, but I do think that we will get closer than we are right now. Yeah, I, that's, that's a good one. I'm going to just say the, I'm probably going to go Philly, Miami. Okay, that's fair. And B just changes the equation. So even even again, fifty percent of Embiid's better than any percent of DeAndre Jordan, right? Like that's that's the the scenario. It would be really funny if Doc still starts DeAndre, um, but the the I, 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 it just changes the complexion a little bit. I think Miami has to play a little bit differently, and also they're not going to have Kyle Lowry, so or at least it hasn't been reported that he's coming back for Game Three. So you know, I think it becomes a question of like, what do you? It, can this be a thing that swings a series there a little bit? If Embiid comes back and he's he's looking pretty good, he's willing to get in there and and, and you know fight for rebounds and stuff like that. It, it, it I think it'll change the complexion of the series. Yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be fun. I'm really excited for these next two days. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, thank you for having me. Thanks again to Mo Dekeel for taking the time to come on. You can listen to him on the awesome Nerdish Europe podcast that he does with. Seth Partno, Dave Dufour, and oftentimes very good guests. can also check out his writing is often at Bleacher Report, and he does a Twitch stream. And you can also keep an eye on all of that following him on Twitter at modakil underscore NBA. That is M-O-D-A-K-H-I-L underscore NBA. Love having him on. His insight, his enthusiasm, really do enjoy that. And as we talked about, we will feel very differently about some of these series in a couple of days than we do right now. That's just the nature of things. And I think of that as part of what makes basketball great, but it does also make it more challenging as an analyst, but that's part of the fun. And if you want to support the show, there are a lot of different things you can do. You can subscribe, download every episode. That's great for Real GM Radio because as a weekly show, we don't have a specific release date. It's going to depend on my time and my guest times. So whether you're on 
Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever else. Subscribing is a great way to connect with this show. can also help other people find the show, leaving a rating and a review in your podcast player or word of mouth, however, social media, however, we really do appreciate that. And the most important thing for this show and anyone else who has them is to check out our sponsors for Real GM Radio. That is Bet Online, and you can use that CLNS50 code to get yourself a 50% welcome bonus. And importantly, it also tells them you came from us. So they will continue to be a sponsor. And I really do appreciate that. can also check out my other work. Dunked On and Dunked On Prime are going strong still. I mean, the playoffs are, I would say, the best time to subscribe. They're the offseason and trade deadline, and there are plenty of other ones. But we're doing pods basically every day there are games. I mean, we'll, And if we don't talk about it that day, we'll talk about it the next day with very, very few exceptions. And we're also getting into free agency. Nate and I did our shooting guard and small forward free agency previews during this past week. And we will, of course, continue moving on that and get into the team-by-team stuff and draft work. I just started watching film, actually, very recently and so that'll be fun and we may end up trying to do some live shows it's going to depend a lot on nate's timing but we'll we'll see there you can also check out my other work I just had a piece come out for The Athletic on James Harden's contract situation and kind of how it can and cannot work. And then I have a couple other pieces that are going through editorial right now that I'm guessing will come out over the next two weeks. And also Spotify Live, Nate and I, it's called Duncan and LaRue. We do that every week. Overwhelmingly, it will be Tuesdays at 3 Pacific, 6 Eastern, but then you can also listen to it after the fact. It gets released now by Spotify a little bit later, which is great. And it's I like to think of it like a call-in radio show. And so you can ask questions on what whatever is intriguing you and we will answer them. And it, I, I think it's a really fun, really fun thing to do. If you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, Danny LaRue, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise. I'll try to get back to you, but I admit that I am not the greatest at that. It is something I try to do. I, that is not my promise. My promise is to read it, but that is enough for now. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Mm-hmm.